We are going to be in the Gospel of Luke this morning. If you brought your Bibles with you, go ahead and open them to Luke chapter 1, verses 57 to 66. Uh, That is where we will be this morning. If you did not bring Scripture with you, it will be on the screen behind me. (coughs) Excuse me, when we get to that point. So have you ever been at a point in your life where you felt stuck? Where you felt like you had been in a rut? Maybe it's spiritual, maybe it's relational, maybe it's vocational, uh, maybe it's educational. If you've ever been in one of those ruts where you, uh, if you, you were one of those who, I have a shirt that says college, the best seven years of my life, you know, where, where you feel like you're stuck in a particular situation or a particular setting, or maybe it's not even a circumstance as much as it is just a feeling that you can't seem to shake, that you can't seem to completely get rid of. Maybe you felt that way. Chances are you probably have at some point in your life where you feel like there's got to be an end to this. There's got to be an end to this period of mourning. There has to be an end to this period of of dissatisfaction. Um, You know, in our culture, we talk a lot about things like midlife crisis and and we put big fancy words to it, but it is a, a lot of different parts in our life. And by the way, thanks to the, my generation, we now have what we call a quarter life crisis. Maybe you've heard of that one uh, as well, 25 or 30 years old. Uh, and, and during that time, there is that feeling, well, what people are trying to put words to is that feeling of being stuck, that there should be something more. Maybe you felt that way, maybe you, you haven't, but maybe you get a routine And in the midst of that routine, and and, and we in the church are incredibly capable of doing this, we get to the point where we don't expect anything new or anything exciting to happen. It's as if our lives become so stuck and so predictable that for some reason we view the Holy Spirit in the same light. And we begin to think that, well, nothing different Nothing strange, nothing big is ever going to happen. Those things happened in the past. When I was in college and in seminary, and I still have these conversations today, we would talk a lot about the idea of revival in our country, the idea of of, of reviving Christian faith. And, And every generation talks about it as if we're on the cusp, but there also seems to be this underlying cynicism within all of us that says that that that's something that happened. The great awakenings of the past are just that. They're in the past. And and so we we live in today and and we go through the motions, again, in every aspect of life, but also spiritually in such a way as if we think nothing good is ever going to happen and we just need to figure it out, figure out that this is what it is, and settle. We missed whatever big break or big opportunity there was, and and we just need to make do with what we have. All the while, there is this voice inside saying, there has to be more. But you have no idea where to find it. You don't know who to ask to find it. And and you have this feeling as if something is missing, and, and, and we don't often know what to put in that place. I think this is likely what Israel, the people of God, felt like before the coming of Jesus. There had been a prophesied hope. Again, if you look at the prophets, the major minor prophets in the Old Testament, they're they're full of judgment, but there's also, in just about all of them, this final word of a coming reconciliation. 
a coming hope to look forward to. Something that Israel collectively as a people were looking to God to deliver them, to restore them to the promised land that they had been removed from, that they had had taken from them. To restore them to their rightful place as God's chosen people and God's chosen land. And even yet today we feel like that hasn't happened sometimes. But they certainly felt like it then. But where was this coming hope? There was about 400 years between Malachi and John the Baptist who we're going to kind of discuss this morning. But during that time, I'm sure many Israelites felt stuck, wondering if this prophesied hope was ever going to become reality. And not just Israel as a people, but individuals within the nation as well, just like the priest named Zechariah in Luke chapter 1, may have felt that same way. Again, a voice inside saying there has to be something more, but still just going through the motions and expecting nothing new to happen. And getting to that point where you say to yourself, this is as good as it gets. Maybe Zechariah said that to himself and settled. And so this morning as we continue along in our Advent series, looking at what we're calling people that are not pictured, that we don't often see in nativity stories or we don't often see focused on during the Christmas season, we're going to look at this person named Zechariah in Luke chapter 1, verses 57 through 66. Again, Luke 1, 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered, and immediately his mouth was opened, and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Now let me give you some context to this passage so that you can understand what is going on. Elizabeth, Zechariah's wife, Elizabeth is where we start this story, is uh, barren. She was unable to bear children until this point in the story. Uh, The story also tells us that her and her husband, Zechariah, who we're going to focus on this morning, were advanced in years. I, I, I love the political correct nature of even that in the Bible. They are advanced in years. They're old, in other words. Uh, they had been on the earth a long time. It didn't make any sense for them to actually have children. And Zechariah, Elizabeth's husband, is a righteous priest. It says that they're both righteous earlier in Luke chapter 1. And he is, as a priest was supposed to do in that day, earlier in the chapter, performing his regular duties of burning incense at the altar in the temple. Now, 
the table of incense, where again, if you go back and you look in context and you read what happened earlier in Luke chapter 1, when Zechariah was there burning the incense, this altar of incense would have been in the holy place just outside of the holy of holies. Now, what does that mean? The holy of holies is where the Ark of the Covenant dwelt. And so in the Jewish mind, that is where the literal presence of God dwelt. The high priest, the high priest, not, so, not some regular priest like Zechariah, the high priest could go into the holy of holies once a year uh, on the day of atonement to uh, offer up the sacrifice that would cover the sins of the people. Uh, But a regular priest like Zechariah, who was chosen by Lot to go and be there burning incense this day in the temple, the day that that, uh, the events happened that are described earlier in Luke chapter 1, this was the altar of incense just outside of the presence of God, separated, again, in the Jewish mind, separated from the literal presence of God by a curtain. This was as close as a man like Zechariah could ever hope to get to the presence of the Lord. This was as good as it gets for Zechariah. Almost there, a priest of the Most High God, whose job it was to testify to God on behalf of the people about forgiveness and offering up the gift of sacrifice so that God might give his forgiveness to people, so that he might show his favor upon the people of Israel. Being there and going through that motion, that is as good as Isaiah thought he was ever going to get it, just outside of the literal presence of God. It's the high priest's job to go into the holy place. He was just outside of it. And that day when he was going through his regular duties, that day when he was going through the motions, I'm not going to to go after his beliefs, but just doing what he did, an angel showed up. Something unexpected happened. Next to the altar of incense, the angel Gabriel comes and explains to Zechariah that he and his wife, both advanced in years, will bear a child and his name shall be John and he will prepare the way for the Lord. John's name means God has been gracious. Gracious to this man who had spent all of his life perhaps wanting a child and his wife being unable to bear. The connotation that that would carry in the first century Jewish world would have been incredibly difficult, would have been incredibly heavy. Not only for John not to have any children, but for him not to have a son, not to have an heir, someone to pass on his bloodline to, someone to pass on the priesthood to, as that's how it was done through, heredit- uh, through, through uh, genetics, I guess, through bloodline, passed on from, from one line to the next, from one generation to the next. So not having that, there must have been, again, this sense of feeling stuck, this sense of this is as good as it's going to get. I'm not going to live beyond my days. I'm, I'm not going to ever be in the, in the literal presence of God. I'm going to be just outside of the presence of God. Perhaps wondering if he had done something wrong to earn this seeming disfavor from God. The angel tells him again that he will bear a son whose name means God has been gracious. And Zechariah does what many of us would do. He doesn't believe him. He questions the angel. In other words, are you sure, Gabriel? Like, have you seen my wife's birth certificate? Do, do you know how long we've been on this planet? Do you understand how, how much I've wished for what you're saying to become reality and it's never happened? Don't you know that my place is right here in the temple of God just outside 
of God's presence? Are you sure this is going to happen? And the angel Gabriel responds to him and says, okay, here's the deal, buddy. Since you didn't believe me, you're not going to speak another word until your child is born. You will be rendered mute until the day that your child comes on this planet. Now, you would think if something like that happened, you would want to go tell everybody, right? Hey, I just saw an angel. You're not going to believe what happened today in the temple. And all the people, as it says, again, earlier in, in Luke chapter 1, they're outside waiting, wondering what in the world is going on. Why is he taking so long? And he comes out and he doesn't say a word because he can't say a word. I don't know if you've ever like, lost your voice, like completely lost your voice. It's one of my greatest fears. And, and when I say that, I mean, like sometimes when I get sick and, and, and Sunday's coming up, I worry, am, am I going to lose my voice? Am I not going to be able to communicate? Plus, I have this weird feeling that, that I'm going to be, like one of my greatest like, irrational fears is to be in the car singing one day and for something to like just pop and for me to lose my voice. Does anybody else have that fear? Probably not because you don't talk for a living, but I do. And so that's, that's a fear of, of my is that I, that I worry about that, and I, that happens to Zechariah. Again, he can, he can kind of explain it because the angel told him that that was going to happen, but he can't tell anybody about it. He has this incredible news, and he can't share it with anybody. And, and if you read the earlier passage in Luke 1, and you see the passage that I read a moment ago, he, he tries to communicate with signs and with a writing tablet and other things, but there's no way, especially in that day and age where sign language couldn't have been advanced like it is today, where you couldn't sit down on a keyboard and type something in. There's no way that he was able to fully communicate what he had seen and what he had felt the day that the angel come, came to him. Elizabeth becomes pregnant. And basically goes into hiding. Earlier in Luke chapter 1, it says she goes, goes away for five months, not ever being seen by anybody. And in the passage where we picked up chapter 57, or verse 57, we see that she bears the son. And this coming of a son brings great rejoicing for Elizabeth, for her friends and family. And we can understand why, right? She had been bearing her entire life, and now at an old age, she is able to bear a child, a son, to her husband who had likely desperately wanted one. It seems like nobody else knew she was pregnant until this point. Again, she, she had been in hiding, and so all of a sudden, imagine hearing that news and, and being there around them that day. Elizabeth just had a child? Wait a minute, you mean the 75-year-old down the street just had a kid? How come I didn't know about this? There's this sudden news and excitement amongst the people, and it's time to name him. Now, Zechariah still can't speak at this point. Even though the child has been born, there's still something that evidently God is still waiting on that gives Zechariah his voice back. And it comes time to name the baby. And as the custom in the day, they just figure that since this is the first child, he's going to be named after his son, especially in a priestly tribe or a priestly family. Surely he will receive the name Zechariah. And so they begin to talk to Elizabeth, the mom, and say, the name's going to be Zechariah, right? And she says, no, his name is John. Now, quick time out real quick. Uh, the angel Gabriel told Zechariah what the baby's name should be. He didn't tell, or at least we don't see it in Luke and Luke's telling of the gospel, he didn't ever come to Elizabeth and tell her what the child's name would be. So maybe 
maybe the angel did and we just don't have it written down, or maybe God laid it on her heart, or maybe Zechariah was able to communicate in some way, again, if he had a writing tablet, which he does in this passage, that this child's name was supposed to be John, but it, it confounds the people. They don't understand. Not only is Zechariah's name not John, but nobody else in their family is named John, and, and it doesn't make any sense whatsoever for this child to be named John. And so Elizabeth refuses. They go to Zechariah, the man of the house, and they ask him, basically, what do you want to name this kid? And they're kind of signing to each other. Uh, again, it's not like sophisticated sign language like we have today. They're just trying to make sense of something in the midst of this chaos and confusion. And so Elijah, uh, not Elijah, Zechariah grabs a tablet that he writes on. Now, this isn't some kind of pen and paper. It would likely be a piece of stone or wood covered with wax. And he wrote on there, his name is John. God has been gracious. Suddenly his voice returns. He concurs with Elizabeth that the baby boy is to be named John. He begins to rejoice and the people are amazed. John, meaning God has been gracious. And God shows his graciousness throughout this entire story. God shows his graciousness in in John, who would prepare the way for the Lord, whose birth narrative in Luke is right alongside of Jesus' birth narrative. We have the story of Elizabeth, and we have the story of Mary almost laid on top of each other because John and Jesus, they share a common story. John will be the one to come and say, there is one coming after me, as, as, as Lynn read earlier this morning. There is one coming after me who is far greater. There is a Messiah coming. There is a Lord coming. Prepare the way for the joy of the Lord for the joy of the world to finally enter into this broken situation. To finally enter into this place where you thought this was as good as it can get, that it's never going to get any better, that there seems like there should be something more, but I don't want to get my hopes up because if I do, I'm just going to be disappointed. John was the one who came and said, get your hopes up. There is one coming who is so much greater than you could ever imagine. There is joy on its way and his name is Jesus and I've come to make ready the way for him. This was John's job. And it was Zechariah and Elizabeth who helped with God's power to bring this child into the world. Yes, God has definitely been gracious throughout this whole story, but particularly to Elizabeth and Zechariah in providing them a part of the story in bringing her a child despite her barrenness in their old age. And in that moment, and again, I can imagine just being there, As soon as he finishes the final letter in the name of John, Zechariah's tongue is loosed. He'd been unable to speak, unable to share with anybody what God had told him, what the angel had told him, and what God was doing. And suddenly, just as soon as the angel's prophecy is confirmed, you will have a child and his name will be John. Just as soon as he is officially named John, his tongue is loosed. And Zechariah immediately begins to praise God. To rejoice. We see his hymn of rejoicing in chapters in verses 67 through 79. You can read that later. It is, it is Zechariah's response to what God does. Much like Mary's response to what God does also in Luke. His tongue is loose and he rejoices. 
that feeling that there has to be more, that feeling that there is something missing, do you know it's there for a reason? Do you know God, God put that feeling within us because there is something more? Because without him, there is something missing. There is something worth searching for. There is something worth expecting. Advent is the season of expectation. And I see it and I feel it in the church today that because all of the bad news that we hear because of the the decline of the church and the rise of atheism and and all sorts of of anti-Christian thought in our society and in our culture, that we don't want to get our hopes up. Right? That, that we just expect it to continue on in this downward spiral. We don't expect God to come and move. Do you know, folks, that the God whom we worshipped moments ago as we sang joy to the world for our God has come. That this God, the one that we call on in prayer every time that we gather together, even if it's just a handful of us on Wednesday night, do you know that that God that you call to on your own when you're in your own room and praying or you're reading his word, do you know that that God is the God who manifested himself in the person of Jesus Christ who came to set us free from sin and death and save our wretched souls so that we might live for him for eternity. Do you know that that's the name whom you're calling when you call upon the name of the Lord? I'm as cynical as anybody else in this world. But it is time for me and you to realize that the reason why it feels like there should be something more is because there should be something more. And his name is God, Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit present with you and me today. The Christmas story is the story that there is more and that more has come in Jesus Christ. Joy is not something we merely look forward to when Christ will finally come back and make all things right at the end of days, but it is something we realize as a present reality. It is available to us right here and right now. Church, whatever happened to joy, whatever happened to your joy in the Lord, I know you get caught up in the rhythm of life so much and you get your expectations crushed so many times. Again, maybe it's something that you don't think is that big or important or you don't want to, you don't want to act like you're so important that, 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 that God needs to give you that raise or that God needs to help you with your relationship or that God needs to remove the spirit of, of just, of malaise from you where you're constantly wondering what's going to happen. Is anything new going to happen? And you just tell yourself, just deal with it. It is is what it is. What happened to your joy? Your joy has come for you in the person of Jesus Christ. It is time for us to reclaim the message of Christmas, not as some sort of materialistic event, but as as the event that Jesus came to earth to give us the joy of our salvation and to rejoice And the fact that there is so much more than this world. There is so much more than the daily grind. Whatever happened to your joy? If you lost it, he's right here. In a manger. On a cross. Walking out of a tomb. Descending like a tongue of fire through the Holy Spirit. Present and available to bring you joy even in the midst of whatever's going on in your life. And so when we have that feeling of is this as good as it gets, let me encourage you this morning. Jesus Christ 
is as good as it gets. Better than you could ever imagine. And he's come for you. It's the joy. Rejoice in the truth of the Christmas story during this entire season. May our response be like Zechariah's. Waiting, unable to feel like we have the words or the ability to say what needs to be said. And suddenly, when God comes, our tongue may be loosed and we may rejoice and share the truth of his salvation. May that be your mouth's cry. May that be your heart's cry during the season of Advent and Christmas. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Amen? Where's your joy? It's in Jesus Christ. And if you've lost it, call on his name today. And let him restore to you the joy of your salvation.